You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Over a three-day period from June 22nd to June 24th of 2007, a tragedy occurred that was on the magnitude that we do not see very often. Not because of what happened, perhaps, because sadly those circumstances do exist on a near-daily, if not daily, basis in the world around us. However, the part of the story that makes this stand out from others was who was committing the acts in question. It's not so often that we see someone who is a public figure, someone who lives in the public eye every day, commit acts like the ones that we are going to talk about here today. Over those three days, the man in question would murder his son, his wife, and then take his own life. The story runs deep, and set to set the scene, we are going to go way back because of the theories and the things that are believed to have played a part here. We are going to discuss the life and final days of a man who is known by fans of professional wrestling and true crime fans all over the world. Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of Gone But Never Forgotten, the life and death of Nancy Elizabeth Benoit, Daniel Christopher Benoit, and Christopher Michael Benoit. GBNF. We hope that this episode and every other episode finds you well. This week, we're going to, as Lance said off the top, look at the family murder that was committed by Chris Benoit, a man who was a world-renowned professional wrestler. This is an episode that I've thought about doing for a long time. This case intersects two worlds that I enjoy researching and learning about. Wrestling and, of course, true crime. This story is one that we are going to tell a little bit differently than other episodes that we have done because I do feel as though backstory is important here in telling the entire story. This case covers a lot of things including wrestling, concussions, family, struggle, and of course murder, including the murder of a young child. So, as always, listener discretion is advised. Christopher Michael Benoit was born on May 21, 1967, in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He was the son of Michael and Margaret Benoit. While he was born in Montreal, he grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where, which is where he was billed as hailing from for most of his wrestling career. When Chris was only six years old, 
He was involved in a car accident that caused his head to strike against the windshield of the car. At the time, he was hospitalized for three days and doctors believed that he had suffered a mild traumatic brain injury. But it was believed that he did not show any side effects from that or any signs of a permanent injury. We will get into this more as we unpack the case, but this would be the first case, uh, first known case of Chris Benoit having a brain injury. Chris became a wrestling fan at a very young age, and it became his driving force in life. He didn't know where it would take him, and he didn't know how he would get there, but he knew that he wanted to be a professional wrestler. This led to him taking on very strenuous weightlifting and exercise routine from a very young age. His early fandom led him to fall in love with two wrestlers in particular, Brett the Hitman Hart and the Dynamite Kid Tom Billington. Chris's love and passion for Bret Hart and wrestling, combined with his proximity to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where the legendary Hart family was from, helped him to be lucky enough to do his training for professional wrestling in part with Stu Hart, the patriarch of the Hart family at the legendary Hart Dungeon. The Dungeon, as it is referred to, is the longtime wrestling school that was in the basement of the Hart family home in Alberta. The Dungeon is renowned for having produced some of the greatest wrestlers of all time, including, but certainly not limited to, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, Brian Pillman, Fritz Von Erich, Jake the Snake Roberts, Jim Nyhart, and so many more. It truly was the place to train if you were training to be a professional wrestler in Canada. Chris Benoit would receive a lot of his wrestling education directly from Stu Hart, and he would develop a wrestling style that paid homage to both the Dynamite Kid and Bret Hart meaning that he wrestled a high-risk style combined with an incredibly technical moveset. At the age of 18, Chris would officially start his wrestling career with Stampede Wrestling in 1985. In his very first match, he attempted a move called a diving headbutt off of the top rope. The top rope to the ring canvas is approximately 5 feet. The diving headbutt would have Chris jump from that top rope and land horizontally on the mat, driving his head into his opponent. When he did that move in his first match, he did not land it correctly and knocked the wind right out of himself. He said that he would never do that move again because the experience was so awful. The ironic and truly sad thing is that if he had stuck to that, we may not be covering his story on a true crime episode today. That, of course, is my opinion, and we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. But this was actually news to me as I researched the case, and it broke my heart even more. In 1989, Stampede Wrestling came to an end, and Chris Benoit would take his wrestling career to Japan and become a staple in New Japan Pro Wrestling. He started off going by his own name, but then put on a mask and went by the name The Pegasus Kid. Chris would become very well known in NJPW for his wrestling, his style, and his ability. In 1992, Chris would return stateside for his first go-around with World Championship Wrestling, and he would also have tours of duty working for Extreme Championship Wrestling 
and World Wrestling Entertainment after that. During those runs in North American companies, Chris would again take that aforementioned diving headbutt from the top rope into his arsenal, and it would become one of his signature moves. As we mentioned before, concussions really do come into this story, and the diving headbutt that Chris did has certainly been attributed to likely concussions that he had over the years. Concussions were certainly not at the forefront of the medical discussion during this time frame, and one can only imagine what kind of damage could potentially be done when someone jumps off the top rope and lands headfirst on an opponent, or the ring mat after being at least six feet in the air. Chris would get married twice in his life. His first wife was Martina, and he had two children with Martina named David and Megan. By 1997, their marriage broke down and Chris would move in and live with Nancy Sullivan, who at the time was the wife of one of the bookers for WCW, Kevin Sullivan. It's widely stated that Chris and Nancy started having an affair, both on screen in the storyline, but also in real life, while they were both still married to their respective partners. We will mention here that while Kevin Sullivan was booking WCW, he actually is accredited with essentially booking his own divorce because he created a relationship on screen for Nancy and Chris that eventually led to the real-life affair and divorce for the two. There is a rumor online that has stated over the years that Kevin Sullivan actually held a grudge for the next 10 years, and people have even stated that they believe that Kevin waited that long and then committed the crimes that we are going to talk about today to get back at Chris and Nancy. These claims are largely based around the fact that Kevin portrayed a satanic character on television, and they really are baseless and downright ridiculous in my opinion. It's pretty obvious to anyone that's using critical thinking that this is not the case here. This was a double murder-suicide, not a triple murder, as we'll lay out later. On February 25th, 2000, Nancy would give birth to Chris and her son, and the two would get married on November 23rd, 2000. This was, as mentioned, Chris's second marriage and Nancy's third marriage. In 2003, Nancy filed for divorce from Chris, and this, looking back, is probably the first real sign that there was trouble between the two. Nancy cited in the divorce filings that the marriage between the two was, quote, irrevocably broken, unquote. And she also alleged that she was the victim of cruel treatment and abuse. Nancy would claim in those filings that Chris had a penchant for breaking furniture in his fits of rage and throwing furniture around the house. At the time that she filed for divorce, Nancy also filed for a restraining order against Chris. One of the things, aside from concussions, that has been theorized in this case and thrown around as a reason for everything that is about to go down was that throughout his life, Chris had very much been using and abusing, depending who you ask, uh, steroids. Um, he was listed later as someone who was getting steroids from a very notable doctor, um, I believe in Florida. And many people think that what we are starting to see here with these divorce filings was Chris's roid rage coming out. 
Later, Nancy would drop both the filing for the restraining order and the filing for divorce. I want to drop as an aside, as someone who has been the victim of abuse in the past, if you get far enough down the line to file for things or make the decision to finally leave a bad situation, don't double back on it. The cycle of abuse is a real thing. If that's something that you don't know about, look it up. Abusers are generally very good at promising the world when their backs are up against the wall. However, the reality is that in most situations, the abuse does come back. This poor woman, knowing what is going to come, makes this so much worse. There were certainly warning signs along the way, both for Chris with his health issues and for Nancy seemingly already having been the victim of abuse. Unfortunately, things for Chris, and likely around Chris, were going to take another hit not too much further down the road. The spiral would sadly continue. One of, if not Chris's best friend, was another wrestler that he had become very close with in his time traveling the world, and that was Eddie Guerrero. If you are familiar with wrestling at all, you know that Eddie's story was tragic for different reasons than what we're talking about today. Eddie had overcome many things in his life, including drug problems, but late in 2005, he would suddenly die in a hotel room while on the road. His death would affect Chris very deeply, as the two were indeed the best of friends, and after the tragedy at the end of Chris's life in 2007, it would be discovered that he had written diary entries to Eddie up until just 10 days prior to the events that happened in the Benoit household. Eddie's death was something that Chris never completely dealt with, clearly, and something that he struggled with every day. We seem to always talk about this, but I think it bears discussion again here today. There is oftentimes quite the pattern of heartbreak, abuse, pain and neglect, in the past of most of the killers that we discuss on this show. We don't mention these things to cause you necessarily to have sympathy, but I know that for myself, for example, part of the reason that I did get interested in true crime was because I was interested on a psychological level in learning about the things that make these people tick and the things that perhaps start their path towards the crimes that they ultimately commit. Chris certainly had a lot of things that could have contributed in small or large part to what we are about to talk about. There was the car accident and the subsequent head injury that occurred very early in his development. There were the consistent head bumps, so to speak, that he took delivering that diving headbutt that we talked about. There were clearly issues between he and Nancy that included abuse on so many levels. And now we also have the death of Eddie Guerrero that clearly affected him on every level as well. Yes, many of the people that knew Chris said that he was in a state of constant bereavement from the time that Eddie passed away until the events that happened in 2007. To pile on one more thing, one of his other longtime friends, Sherry Martell, also passed away in 2007, just weeks before Chris murdered his wife and child and committed suicide. On June 19, 2007, Chris would wrestle his last wrestling match. 
He was scheduled to wrestle on Sunday, June 24th at a WWE pay-per-view, but he did not show up for that event. On June 22nd, Chris rushed home for what he said was a family emergency, but autopsies would later reveal that Friday was when Nancy Benoit died at an undisclosed time from strangulation. Nancy would later be found wrapped in a towel and with her limbs all bound. Her injuries would indicate that Chris had pressed a knee into her back while pulling back on a cord that was wrapped around her neck. A copy of the Bible was found beside her body. On Saturday, June 23rd, it is believed that Chris killed his son Daniel. This belief in timeline is because the decomposition that had set in was not as far advanced as that of Nancy's when authorities arrived at the house. The exact time of death is still unknown. Daniel was suffocated in his bedroom by his father, and he had been sedated by Chris with Xanax, and it is very likely that he was unconscious when he was killed. Daniel had internal injuries to his throat with no bruising. One thing that I do want to mention here as an aside is that over the years it has been reported that Daniel Benoit suffered from Fragile X Syndrome, and that has been said to have contributed to the domestic problems between Chris and Nancy. However, there has never been any proof of this, and it has actually been stated that it is categorically untrue. In point of fact, Daniel's teachers would say that his development was on par with students of his own age. It has also been erroneously reported that because of the Fragile X Syndrome, or for other reasons, there were needle marks on Daniel's body at the time of his death because Chris had been giving him steroids. But the family has denied that there is any truth in any of that as well, and it was never mentioned in autopsy records. Also, on Saturday, June 23rd, Chris would send a voicemail to Chavo Guerrero, another wrestler and Eddie Guerrero's nephew, telling him that he had overslept and missed his flight and would be late for the wrestling show that night. Chavo would call Chris back and speak with Chris, who he said sounded tired and a bit out of it, but he said that Chris confirmed everything that he had left on the voicemail. After thinking about the call and being worried about Chris, Chavo would call him back again about 12 minutes later, but Chris did not answer the call. He told Chris to call him back. At 3.44 p.m., Chris did call Chavo back, and he said that he had been on a call with the airline attempting to work out another flight. He also said that he was exhausted because Nancy and Daniel were both sick from food poisoning. Benoit would also call talent relations for the WWE and tell them that Nancy had been vomiting blood and that Daniel was also vomiting. The WWE would allow for Chris to miss the wrestling event on the Saturday and then rebooked his flight for Sunday morning so that he would make it for the pay-per-view. When the offices of WWE tried to call Chris back with the details for his travel, they were unable to reach him. That is when things really started to take a dark turn. On the morning of Sunday, June 25th, between 3.51 a.m. and 3.58 a.m., text messages were sent using Chris and Nancy's phones. At 3.53 a.m., the text to two co-workers from Chris's phone had his home address. Also at 3.53 a.m., a text went to those two co-workers that said, quote, The dogs are in the enclosed pool area. Garage side door is open, unquote. 
at 3.54 a.m., 3.55 a.m., and 3.58 a.m., text messages were sent from Nancy's phone that again just stated the home address. At some point after those text messages were sent on Sunday, Chris Benoit would take his own life by hanging himself. He used a weight machine cord on a pull-down machine to make a noose. Benoit would release the weights and that caused his strangulation. When he was found, he was still hanging from the pulley cable. Just an absolutely heartbreaking scene, no doubt. I cannot imagine being in law enforcement anytime, but certainly not in a situation like this when you walk into a situation where two people have been murdered and then the culprit has subsequently committed suicide. Throughout the day on Sunday, his employer, the WWE, made numerous attempts to get in touch with Chris via phone calls, and they also checked in with numerous hospitals in the area where he lived to see if they could track down Chris, Nancy, or Daniel's whereabouts. At 12.45 p.m. on Monday, June 25th, the WWE got in touch with the Fayetteville County Sheriff's Office and requested a wellness check on Chris and his family. Around 4 p.m., the sheriff's office got in touch with WWE and told them that when they entered the home of Chris Benoit, they had found three deceased bodies, an adult male, an adult female, and a male child. The WWE were then told that the home was now a major crime scene. The media circus would ensue as details were released or made up regarding the case. One of the major conclusions that was made was that this was a case of roid rage. Steroids were a major issue in wrestling at the time, and the easy conclusion for the media, when it was announced as a murder-suicide, was that steroids were involved in some way. Chris also had a history of abusing steroids, as we mentioned earlier. Police, however, quickly noted that the actions that Chris had taken were not done in a rage, nor were they committed by someone that was out of control. News outlets, though, were chasing down the steroid story, trying to incriminate WWE and wrestling in general. To combat this, the WWE even released the following statement, quote, The physical findings announced by authorities indicate deliberation, not rage. The wife's feet and hands were bound, and she was asphyxiated, not beaten to death. By the account of the authorities, there were substantial periods of time between the death of the wife and the death of the son, again suggesting deliberate thought, not rage. The presence of a Bible by each is also not an act of rage, unquote. So, as we have laid out, there were many rumors and motives that were pushed forward over the years, and we will get into what we believe happened here, and what is basically the prevailing thought as well in a moment. However, we want to take a moment to of course look at the victims of murder in this case. Nancy Elizabeth Toffolini was born on May 17, 1964, and was 43 years of age at the time of her death. She was a manager in professional wrestling and a model. Nancy was most known for her time spent in WCW and ECW under the ring name of Woman. Nancy first worked for State Farm Insurance along with modeling work when she graduated from DeLand High School in Florida. 
She would then slowly find her way into the wrestling industry as she started doing some modeling shots and selling programs for shows in Orlando. As we mentioned, she would then marry and divorce wrestler Kevin Sullivan and then would marry Chris Benoit. She had one child with Chris, Daniel Benoit. Daniel was born on February 25, 2000 and was only seven years old at the time of his murder. He was Chris's third child and Nancy's only child. These are two people who by all accounts were lovely people and certainly two people whose lives were ended far, far too early. Murder is never easy to comprehend, but I think that the only thing that is worse than hearing about the murder of a young child is learning that he was killed by his own parent. That is something that I think is ultimately unfathomable to almost anyone. A memorial would be held for Nancy and Daniel on July 14, 2007 in Daytona Beach, Florida. Both of them were cremated and placed into starfish-shaped urns for Nancy's family. And that brings us back to Chris. One of the things that really stands out in hindsight is that Chris was really struggling. A lot of people have said over the years that Chris was an incredibly private person and that we, he would keep things inside. His persona on television was incredibly straight-laced and many people said that he was much like that in real life. The struggle with that is that I think that each and every one of us knows people that are like this. People that are quiet and that keep things to themselves, keeping their cards close to the vest, so to speak. However, for many people that can be a warning sign as well. It's just hard to tell for sure at times which is which. I don't want to place blame on anyone, obviously, but I do think that there certainly were a lot of signs that Chris was in trouble. Chris clearly had depression issues and anger issues that seemingly sprouted up at different times in his life, most notably with the divorce filings from his wife for the anger and also with the change in his personal life and persona after the loss of Eddie Guerrero. This is a theme that has been coming up a fair bit in our recent episodes, and with the coming of winter here in Canada and the onset for many things like seasonal affective disorder, perhaps there is a reason for that. So we will take this opportunity again to remind you, if you're struggling and are finding yourself experiencing suicidal thoughts or perhaps noticing that you're struggling with addiction or things of that nature, please reach out to someone. There are numerous helplines, phone numbers, and anonymous ways to reach out for help wherever you live. Please do so. Even when you feel at your darkest and you feel like you're alone or nobody cares, remember there are always people who care deeply for you and do not want to see anything happen to you. It is a slippery slope for sure. As someone who deals with depression myself, I've certainly become aware as the symptoms get worse. It gets harder to help yourself and harder to seek, seek help. Those voices in your head get louder and the days can get darker. Stand up to it. No matter who you are or what you are doing, things can get better and you can beat whatever you are dealing with. One of the things of note here with Chris Benoit and people that struggle with this is that you know you need to rely on your mind to realize that you're struggling but the reality is what's broken is your mind. So it's definitely a tough thing to deal with. 
On that note, the last thing that we really want to cover in the fallout of this case is CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. CTE is a progressive brain condition that is thought to be caused by repeated blows to the head and repeated episodes of concussions. It is particularly associated with contact sports like boxing, wrestling, and American football. On Thursday, June 28th, just days after the tragedy took place, former WWE wrestler Christopher Nowinski reached out to Chris Benoit's father, Michael Benoit. Christopher is an American neuroscientist and an author who has spent much of his life researching concussions. He also co-founded the Concussion Legacy Foundation and the CTE Center located at Boston University. To this point in time, CTE can only be confirmed by a neuropathy study done after death. Upon study post-mortem, Chris Benoit was the first former wrestler to be diagnosed with CTE. Symptoms of CTE can include memory loss, confusion, impaired judgment, impulse control problems, aggression, depression, anxiety, suicidality, Parkinsonism, and eventually dementia. These symptoms can even begin years or even decades after the last brain trauma occurred. The tests that were performed on Chris's brain showed that his brain was so severely damaged that it resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. He was reported to have had an advanced form of dementia, and at the time, his brain scan was the worst known brain scan that they had ever seen. There are many cases of former American football players, for example, whose brains were in similar condition to Chris Benoit's, who also caused harm to themselves or to others. For fans of wrestling, this has all led to much debate. The WWE largely ignores the history of Chris Benoit in their lineage and has largely erased him from most videos and platforms that they use. Many consider Chris to have been one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, and they debate that he should not be forgotten, largely because of the belief reason that this tragedy took place. On the flip side of that, though, you can certainly see why the company and many people do not want to celebrate what he did accomplish. Especially in today's world of cancel culture, it's certainly hard to fathom a world where someone who killed three people, including themselves, would be celebrated on any level. However, the debate can certainly be had. We look at serial killers and killers and other criminals who don't wind up with a trial or criminal sentence because they are found to be not criminally responsible for different reasons up to and including mental health issues. With the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient, you can certainly see that if this was just a case of double homicide and Chris had not taken his own life, he may have wound up as one of those cases. However, with that said, my personal opinion as a wrestling fan is this. I was blessed to have seen Chris Benoit wrestle, both on television and in person, many times. He was an incredibly gifted athlete, and I would even venture to say that yes, he was one of the best that ever did what he did. However, 
If a serial killer was a gifted actor or a murderer was an incredible musician before their actions, I don't think that they should be celebrated either. Much as I don't think that we can celebrate Chris by doing something like putting him into wrestling Hall of Fames. Much like we have seen in cases like Elizabeth Wetlofer, whose case you can listen to in our archives, even though there were issues at hand that caused the crimes to take place, you cannot fully forget that and forgive based on that fact. I agree with that. I certainly cannot forgive someone for taking the life of their wife and their son in any way, shape, or form, regardless of what mental issues there were going on. To me, a killer is a killer, regardless of the circumstances. It is certainly sad all around. I do, however, think I can see all sides of the debate. And I think that we will cover even more on that debate on our reaction episode that will drop as this episode drops for all our patrons over on Patreon. I think that's Julie's way of reminding me that this is not the place for me to get deep and philosophical on one side or the other. So yes, please, come and join us at patreon.com forward slash podcast. If you haven't done so already, and sign up for any of our tiers. We have some pretty deep discussions and philosophical conversations over there in the past, and I'm sure that this week will not be any different. Working through our own thoughts and emotions on all of our cases is always interesting. And other than that, I don't think that there is anything else to say other than thank you for listening, and we will see you back next time here on Gone but never forgotten.